0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Tom Campbell. Um, I've been getting a lot of requests to interview Tom. In fact, even after I had him scheduled, I kept getting emails saying, you got to interview Tom's c- Tom Campbell. And then I kept saying, well, He's scheduled. So there's been a lot of anticipation for this interview. Let me read just a little bio of Tom and then we'll take it from there. So in February of 2003, Tom published the My Big Toe uh, trilogy, which represents the results and conclusions of his scientific exploration of the nature of existence. This overarching model of reality, mind, and consciousness explains the paranormal as well as the normal, places spirituality within a scientific context, solves a host of scientific paradoxes, and provides direction for those wishing to personally experience an expanded awareness of all that is. The My Big Toe reality model explains metaphysics, spirituality, love, and human purpose at the most fundamental level, provides a complete theory of consciousness, and solves the outstanding fundamental physics problems of our time, deriving both relativity theory and quantum mechanics from first principles, something traditional physics cannot yet do. As a logic-based work of science, My Big Toe has no basis in belief, dogma, or any unusual assumptions. And uh, maybe as a first question, our friend Larry that we were just speaking to before the recording, Tom, asked a question. He said, I'm curious if the information that Tom teaches was learned from out-of-body work that he did at the Monroe Institute. And I might add a little addendum to that question, is which is, to what extent is everything you're going to be talking about with us today uh, just derived from some sort of intuitive spiritual insight that you got from some kind of spiritual practice or awakening or some such thing? Or to what extent has have you just worked it out logically and come up with a theory that, that feels good to you, but mm, is, has yet to be verified experientially or, or experimentally?
1: Okay. Uh, the short answer is it's, it's both of those. Um, to answer Larry, uh, no, it wasn't something I came up with uh, while working at Monroe uh, Institute, what's, what's now Monroe Institute anyway, or working with Bob. Basically, I developed uh, my big toe theory over probably 35 years of thinking about it. Um, one of the things that made it uh, easier for me to do, as I had thoughts, so it, it was a logical process uh, leading but an experiential process doing the research, if you will. So I, I'm i a physicist and what we physicists do is try to make models of things. We try to understand how things work. So that's just my nature. So once I got involved with Bob Monroe, I wanted to understand how it worked, why it worked, what were the limitations, what was going on, kind of what's the bigger picture here. And I found that after, oh, Five or six years with Bob, I could go out of body. I could get into the into the larger consciousness system very easily on demand, whenever I wanted to, and I could do it in such a way that it was. Um, I was able to do experiments there. In other words, it was repeatable. I could end up in the same situations, in the same places, in the same way, so that I could carry uh, uh, on experiments and see what did affect what, you know. Eliminate variables so there was only the one variable I was studying, and then try to change that variable and see how it changed effects, and and so on. So I did that in order to do the do the research in, you know, because otherwise you just have theory. If it's all intellectual, then you think it maybe works this way, but you don't really know until you get in and try it. So it was a combination of doing research in the non-physical and of logically trying to explain it because. Being a physicist, I needed to logically explain it because otherwise I couldn't explain it to anyone else. You know, if you, if you can't put it in rational, logical terms, if you can only put it in poetry, you know, in poetical terms, it's really hard to explain it to other people. They may or may not get it depending on how they interpret your poetry. You know, it's, it's much harder to explain in detail so that people really do understand it. So anyway, uh, I wanted to do it logically, so the logic part of me uh, just noodled it out, you know, thought about it, well, what does this mean? How, you know, what are the possibilities? And then I'd go do research to decide which of those possibilities was more likely. I had a whole series of aha moments as we, as we went, as I figured bits and pieces of the story out. About 35 years later, I was ready to write the books. And I wrote the books because a, a friend I was talking to Uh, Asked me the big question. He says, "Well, Tom, uh, you know, how does this reality work? You know, what's going on here? What's the whole, you know, what's the whole thing?" And four or five hours later, I realized that I needed to write it down to produce clarity in my thinking because things that are verbal tend to tend to be fuzzy. You kind of talk around things, but if you have to write it down in good prose, then it has to be a lot more. Precise. Precise. Focused. Uh, It has to make sense. So I started writing it down and uh, my first first cut at this was eight and a half pages. (laughs) And I passed that around and mostly had eyes rolling and they had no idea what it was I was talking about. I then attempted to explain it. So I wrote more as an explanation to the questions and the things that people didn't understand and I passed that around and I got more questions. And so the books actually developed. By me uh, writing down the things I thought were important, the main issues, and answering people's questions about it as I went. So then one day I said, gee, I might have enough material here for a book. And it just kept right on going. And then it was, whoa, I got way too much material for a book. You know, this is going to have to be several books or one big fat book. So that's kind of where it came from. So it was a combination of both, an ability to do research in the larger consciousness system and a a logical process that just was representative of the way physicists think, you know, what's the, what's the logic behind this? How does it work? Make a model.
0: So most physicists will come up with a theory and then they'll use a particle accelerator to test it or they'll travel to Africa to see if the sun's gravity can bend starlight, you know, during a solar eclipse or something. They will use some kind of external apparatus to test their theory. But what you seem to be saying is that you use the apparatus of your own nervous system as an experimental tool to research the ideas you were coming up with.
1: Yes, right. Instead of a telescope, I I use my consciousness. That's right. the that's the instrument that's the instrument with which we can connect to the larger consciousness system. Mm-hmm. But once you do that, you have all the same sorts of things to do that the scientist has with his telescope, you know, looking for Photons to be bent around a gravitational force. Uh, It's the same sort of thing. You have to eliminate variables. Uh, You have to uh, do your experiments over and over again to make sure that you're not just getting anomalous results. You have to understand your errors, you know, where you might be getting errors in your results. And then hopefully you can do them from different perspectives. You not only get the light bending uh, from the viewpoint of South Africa, but it needs to you maybe need to do two or three other experiments that corroborate that rather than just the one one thing. So the rest of it's all just basic science.
0: So as with particle accelerators and trips to solar eclipses, would you say that the corroboration that you've achieved through your own repeated experience could be replicated by other people as well and perhaps actually has been so that it's not just some subjective thing that you alone are cooking up?
1: Yes, that is uh, true. It could be, can be, and has been, as you say, uh, my conclusions. When you look at the very top level of the conclusions I come to about what reality is and how it works, you'll find a lot of agreement going back to, what, about four or 5,000 years ago, mm-hmm. where most of it was written down, mm-hmm. you know, which, of course, your program is called Buddha at the Gas Pump. So we have people... Besides me, many people for thousands of years have used their consciousness as a tool in this sense and come back with models of how reality works. And it's interesting how well they overlap. The differences tend to be in the metaphors used to describe them, in the cultural overlays that uh, generally have to be a part of whatever you say, because what you say has to communicate to the people of your time. And the way you do that is different in different times. So that's the main difference. You know, what I bring to this is a logical process that's, that's not poetry. This is the way I think it works and look out into the world. And here are the reasons that it works this way, but it's more of a logical process. And I do that because basically I'm coming at it from both a physics perspective and a consciousness researcher perspective.
0: So would you say that what you have come up with is not necessarily original because yogis and mystics have been experiencing these things for thousands of years, but, what, but your original contribution is to put it in the contemporary scientific language That so you're serving as like a bridge or an interface between traditional mystical experiences and the scientific world?
1: Yes, that would be a, a good way to put it. When you do that, when you have it as a logical process, then you can go a lot further. You see, poetry has its limitations. It's descriptive. And what we've had before is descriptions of the larger reality and descriptions of kind of the mechanics of how things work. But we've not really had theory. We've not really had a a way of why does it have to work that way? Okay, Mm -hmm. that's the way it works. But Why? You know, where did that come from? Why is it like that? And, you know, that kind of specificity that you get from a scientific viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads you to probably a little different perspective. But yes, basically the same sort of things. You know, we've had Buddha talking about how uh, the physical reality was illusion. Well, you know, I talk about the physical reality as a virtual reality. That's the same thing, but it's in different words. So virtual reality has process behind it. It's not just a statement of fact that reality is illusion, but when you say it's virtual, then you understand that it's data and that it's computed and so on. So it leads to another different set of metaphors in terms of science, in terms of technology, in terms of rational process, Uh, rather than just describing what is, it says what is and why is it that way and where does it come from and why does it have to be that way? You know, why didn't it turn out to be some other way? There's there's reasons why it is that way.
0: Okay, so we've sort of established the foundation for where you're coming from and how you derived the things that you say. Now let's get into what those things actually are. I mean, you know, so far we've heard the phrase my big toe and obviously you're an encyclopedic kind of guy. I have like four or five days worth of your recordings on my hard drive, which (laughs) I haven't had a chance to listen to all of them, obviously. But And your books are huge. Aren't they like three 700 page volumes or something?
1: No, altogether, Uh, all three books together I think now are something like 800 and 850 pages or something. If you don't count things that are repetitive, like each book will have a table of contents that has... The whole table of contents for the three books so that's kind of repetitive in the books but you just yeah. take the unique pages there's about 850 pages in all three books
0: so there's a lot of material and we have maybe two hours so let's try to give people the two-hour version of what it is you're, you're you've got to offer and i'll do my best to ask some intelligent questions every now and then
1: okay now besides those books they they do the fundamental theory but there's also like 220 videos on youtube yeah that's where my, 400, that's that's where my four
0: days worth of stuff came yeah, from <laughs> and,
1: and that tends to do more of the science i didn't want to be too science heavy in my written book because it really wasn't a book for scientists it was a book for you know lay people it was a book for everybody to read so i didn't want to uh, get too technical in it so the science is kind of there but it, it's not explained in a lot of detail it's just kind of stated uh why
0: did you call it my big toe
1: well, you know, I was looking for some kind of a snappy, uh, you know, rememberable title like you do for books, and it is a TOE. It is a theory of everything, and, and actually, it's more of a theory of everything than what science calls a theory of everything. That's the TOE, T-O-E, theory of everything. Now, in science, they've been talking about TOEs since Einstein tried to unite quantum mechanics and relativity, and that was going to be the TOE. And the reason scientists did that was because these two big pillars of science, modern pillars of science, relativity and quantum mechanics, they have basic assumptions underlying them that conflict with each other. And not only that, they both only work in their own realm. So they're not general. They're kind of specific. So scientists thought, well, there must be some bigger understanding that derives both of these, and both of these are just subsets, kind of partial answers to the whole thing. So off went Einstein and others to try to find this toe, theory of everything, from which they could derive all of physics, and they failed. They, they did not do that, but mine is, I call it a big toe, because it not only says how quantum mechanics and relativity connect with each other and derives both of those as Einstein's toe wanted to do but it also is a theory of consciousness actually it's primarily a theory of consciousness from which the physics gets derived from the theory of consciousness so now it's talking about the subjective world consciousness is subjective it's a subjective world and the objective world so it's the mind and the matter the normal which is physical normal and the paranormal which is beyond physical normal so it's not just a little toe in physics, but it's a big toe for basically everything, including consciousness and the subjective world. And I put my there because I wanted to remind people that these are my experiences, okay, my model and my research that did it, and that everybody else needs to do their own. It's not mine because I have such pride in the authorship, oh, this is my big toe, (laughs) but it's mine in that reality's personal. You see, it's subjective. And you can't take my big toe, you have to generate your own big toe. Mm. You have to grow your own through your own experience, because if it's not your experience, it's not your truth. And that's why I put the my on it to kind of emphasize that point that this is a theory, this is a way of looking at things, a perspective. And it's not believe this, this is the truth. That's not it at all. Don't believe this. Go have your own experience, find your own truth. So that's why I called it my big toe. And besides, I thought maybe that would catch somebody's eye. My big toe, what's that about yeah. guy writing about his foot? Makes, you know, makes so. for a
0: nice cover graphic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that leads to an interesting question. One is, would you say that consciousness alone could be that which could reconcile relativity and quantum mechanics, because only, only consciousness in its pure state is fundamental enough? And would you say also that everyone, as you were just saying, has to do their own experimentation because it's if you're just conceptualizing this stuff it has no practical significance for you you actually have to do the direct exploration in the field of consciousness in order for any of this to be a practical living reality
1: yes yes that uh, that is the case entirely yeah consciousness both, both parts yeah both parts consciousness okay. is a fundamental thing and it's from an understanding of consciousness that's where we start is with consciousness once you understand consciousness you can derive the fundamentals of quantum mechanics and the fundamentals of relativity. You see, quantum mechanics is, is based on one major idea. It's got a lot of math that, that uh, works out the logical consequences, but the major idea is that if you treat particles as probability distributions, then you can compute correct answers to, you know, experiments. And they have no idea why that should be the case. That's very frustrating for them. That's why they say, shut up and calculate, because, uh, you know, why should particles be best represented as probability distributions? And with relativity, you have this concept that if C is a constant, that means it's invariant under the motion of its source. Speed of light? The speed of light, yeah. The speed of light is a constant, then relativity falls out as a is almost just an algebra problem. It's just based on that fundamental idea. Once you get that idea, then special relativity just falls out of that concept, and then general relativity falls out of special relativity. So those are the two defining concepts of both of those. And both of those facts of reality, that speed of light's a constant, and I call it C. That's kind of the typical variable for it, that speed of light's a constant and that the uh, particles or probability distributions can be derived from a theory of consciousness. Hmm. So, once you understand that, then the rest of it is taking the math and working out the logical conclusions of what does that mean, that sees a constant or that particles are probability distributions, and those logical conclusions define the science of relativity and the science of quantum mechanics. So, yes, consciousness is the, is the source. And if you understand consciousness, then you don't have to shut up and calculate. You can understand quantum mechanics, too, and you can understand relativity, how it works that way.
0: Okay, so to make sure I understand this and help the listeners understand, so you just said that C, the speed of light being a constant, and particles being a a probability distribution, are both derivable from consciousness being a fundamental reality is that correct that's right okay and Mm -hmm. elaborate a little bit on why that is so because i don't quite understand it
1: well we start with consciousness okay and i do in in my books and and in some of my talks i talk about consciousness and where consciousness comes from you know what what are the origins and beginnings and then it, it evolves and it develops into kind of what we think of consciousness now and then we end up with virtual realities, which is a, a schoolhouse for consciousness to learn to to uh, lower its entropy, which is the same as uh, spiritual growth, which is the same as consciousness evolution, you know, evolving the quality of one's consciousness. So, and entropy
0: get, means disorder, just so people entropy know is a the measure term. of disorder, right?
1: Right. So, we, that's a kind of a long chain that I've just said in three or four sentences, but it'd probably take three or four hours to do that in detail. And, anyway, and, so- and
0: when you say consciousness, obviously, you're not just talking about uh, the byproduct of some neuroanatomical anatom- process. You're talking about something that is fundamental to the universe, that is a field out of which everything arises rather than just the epiphenomenon of brain functioning.
1: Exactly. But it's more than fundamental to the universe. The universe is a subset of it. Okay, good. So the reason I had to skip all those steps or kind of run through them is that then gets us to the point of where this physical reality, our universe, our physical universe, you know, why does it have to exist? Where does it come from? Why, you know, what's its purpose? And it has a purpose as a, as a schoolhouse, a place for consciousness to evolve. And of course, if you are consciousness, you need to evolve because the game is evolve or die. That's the nature of, uh, of living things. You either move on and continue to learn, continue to grow, or you start dissipating, kind of staying, staying still, you know, not, not evolving and not de-evolving in the long term is unstable. You know, that's not, a, that's not a good place. You have to do one or the other because if you stop growing, and you want to stay stagnant, well, you will, be, uh, you will begin to disintegrate, you'll begin to come apart. Your entropy will just naturally start to grow if you're not constantly working to lower it. That's the nature, of, yeah. that's the way things work, you see. That distinguishes so we're just,
0: living systems from non-living systems, right?
1: Yes. That's, I mean, well,
0: vol- Volkswagens left to themselves just deteriorate into rust eventually, but living systems continually eat negative entropy, so to speak, and, and maintain greater and greater Orderliness or create yeah, greater, you know, greater, yeah.
1: greater orderliness, right? Yeah. So, but you have to do that at the cost of effort. If there's no effort made to continue to eat entropy and make orderliness, then the entropy takes over, mm. you start to disintegrate. So, mm-hmm. things have to uh, have a process that keeps working to survive. So, the consciousness system is no different than that. So, it needs to evolve, it needs to lower its entropy which is increasing the quality of its consciousness. And I might say to make a little more of what I've said in the background make sense, is now this consciousness is a digital information system. It's just about information. And it's digital in the sense that it's just code. It's discrete. Okay, At the base in our mind, we think of code and discrete as ones and zeros that make up the information. And that's, that's what I mean. It doesn't have to be ones and zeros. That's just a metaphor of, of one way of looking at the problem, but anyhow, it is, is discrete in the way that uh, computation, digital computation is, is discrete compared to analog computation, which has to do with wheels and cams and gears and other sorts of things, it's not discrete, it's, a, it's, it's an analog version. So it's a digital information system, because consciousness is just information.
0: Okay, let me ask you a couple questions on that one. Firstly, does consciousness evolve or is it really that its expressions evolve and that consciousness being absolute can't change or evolve, but rather the vehicles through which consciousness you know, ch- is channeled or expressed or lived, those evolve. That's, maybe that's. I'll, I'll leave you with that question before asking yeah. anything else.
1: Okay, that's a bit of a, of a uh, word game in the sense that we're using words to break out consciousness into separate things, that its expression from its fundamentals and I don't know that you can really break them out. I guess in, a, in an analysis game you can pull things apart like that and think about it in those ways and talk about them, but it's really a whole thing. You know, what is the larger consciousness system? Well, it has its potential and it has, I guess, capacity. It's not infinite. It's a finite system and it defines itself by what it does and what it is and what it knows you know its information is how it's defined if you took away its expression then there wouldn't be anything there other than potential so it's kind of hard for me to slice that in two and say you have the potential and then you have what the potential creates and and then talk about those separately they they seem to me to be all part of the one thing but if we do that just for the sake of talking then I would agree with you. The potential is kind of always there, kind of in the background, the fundamental. And the expression, as you say, would be the state that it's in now. You know, and then, uh, you know, now it's different than it was when I just said now before. You see, it's always, it's constantly changing. So the state is in, is always evolving. It can de-evolve as well. So it's all always in a state of flux. Yeah, so we can bring it out in those terms, but I don't know that we actually gain much by doing so. I just see the whole thing, the larger consciousness system, it's a real thing, therefore it's a finite thing, it's not perfect, it has to continue to work on lowering its entropy to survive, and it does that. Now we can talk about, well, what's its environment like? What's on the outside of this larger consciousness system? You know, What, what kind of environmental uh Issues does it have to deal with? And we get to that, and the answer is just don't know. And the reason we don't know isn't really a failure of ours, it's that there's some things you just can't know. There's limitations to knowledge. I do in, in some of my talks a thing with uh, I, I talk about an analogy where a bacterium in your stomach doesn't understand sunshine and rain and farmers and all the things that bring us foods, you know, refrigerators and and processing and so on but that doesn't mean that food isn't important to it I mean that's what that bacteria does it works on food so the very thing that is most central to its function comes from some place it can never understand it just doesn't have the ability to understand those things it doesn't make them unimportant it just makes them beyond understanding and we're in that same sort of thing we are consciousness we are pieces of this larger consciousness system We cannot see outside the system. We can't stand on the edge of the system and look out because we're it. You see, it's just like a a camera can't look at itself. You know, I mean, yes, in a mirror and all that kind of things. But you know what I mean? You can't, you know, the camera doesn't take a picture of itself because the camera is the the thing. It takes pictures of other things, but not of itself. So it's the same sort of thing. Um, If you are consciousness, then you don't. At least, like us, if we're pieces of the system, then we can explore the system, but we can't explore outside of the system because we are pieces of the system. So we're trapped here. So I don't really know anything about that environment that the larger conscious system might be in. But in my books, I do some uh, some hand waving and uh, you know making up some stuff and you know float a couple of ideas here and there, the things that, that might be or might not be. But it's all conjecture, and none of it should be taken particularly seriously.
0: Okay. Let me ask you a few questions based on that. Um, You mentioned something about consciousness having to keep its own entropy in check, and here I'm going to throw in some equating of consciousness with the unified field, or the vacuum state or something, but at that level of creation, is there any entropy? In its sort of most fundamental state, isn't it a a field of perfect order, which is not entropic at all? Second thing is, you know, there's all these scriptures which say that, you know, the individual doesn't realize consciousness. Consciousness realizes itself uh, because, as you said, it's like the the wave can't realize the entire ocean as a wave. Well, you didn't say that, but this is the analogy that you're alluding to, that, you know, the wave can't sort of take within its individual form the entire ocean, but the wave can kind of settle down and realize its essential nature as the entire ocean and in which point at which point the ocean actually realizes itself it's not the wave realizing itself so two things in there see see what you say to that
1: all right tell me the first one again first
0: one was about entropy you alluded to consciousness having to kind of keep its own entropy from getting out of control or something but it's my understanding that at the level and i'm obviously not a physicist but it's my understanding that at the most sort of ground state of, of, of natural law or whatever, that there is no entropy, it's a field of perfect orderless, yeah. perfect infinite correlation and so on.
1: Yeah. I would not agree with uh, with that idea, that at the ground state you have uh, perfect order, okay. and the larger consciousness system is not a perfect system, it has lots of entropy that it needs to uh, convert you know, from higher entropy to lower entropy, and you do that in the process of, that's what I mean by raising the quality of your consciousness. It's basically lowering the entropy of that data system mm-hmm. that is yours. And think of, think of a data system, uh, the entropy in a data system has to do with content. If you have useful, ordered content, then you can do something with that. It's, you know, it's it has meaning and it, it has function. If The opposite of that would be randomness. Randomness, there is no content. There's nothing is ordered and everything is just random and there's no function there at all. It doesn't do anything, it just is. Okay, so if you're an information system, what you want to do is to increase your content. And you want that content to be as meaningful and significant as possible. Because the more meaningful and significant is, then the less entropy it has. The, the structure you build has more information in it, if you will, if it has more significance and more, more content to it. So, the system itself, being an information system, has the potential. It starts, well, let's put it this way it starts pretty much as a blank slate. All it knows is this versus that. It can, def, it can define two states. Okay, it can define change. I was in this state, now I'm in that state. Or I can generate this state and that state. Once you start there, then the rest of it just evolves to lots of this states and that state. So now you've got lots of ones and zeros, and you kind of see where I'm going with the metaphor. You end up with information. And that information just evolves because if it de-evolves, now you no longer can tell one state from another, and you just have random, you know, randomness, and there's no... There's no content, there's no meaning, there's there's no awareness. So we have a system that, once gaining awareness, needs to continue to lower its entropy to maintain itself. Otherwise, it would, it would go back to uh, randomness. So that's the idea. You don't start with the perfect system. We kind of think about that in physical process because we look at physical processes in this virtual reality, and we imagine that they get... Less random and therefore more perfect, you know, as we, as we lower their entropy. And then we think that, well, then the, the perfect ultimate state to be in is a state of zero entropy. And that's certainly where our consciousness is headed and it'll get there someday. That's not the case. It's not like this. This is a real system that is evolving. Evolving is open-ended. Evolution doesn't have an end. It doesn't get to a point where it says, okay, I'm done. I'm perfect. Nothing else to do. There's always something else to do because evolution builds on itself. Whatever it is now, things will change. And in an information system where information is constantly being changed and, you know, shared and new things are made out of that information. When you get a lot of pieces of information together, then you get creative ideas and new things happen. In a space like that where there's constant creation and newness being generated, There's also constantly having entropy generated. You have things where where the the functions that are created are destructive functions. And uh, you have to keep working at it. Otherwise, it, it will disintegrate. So the consciousness system will never be a zero entropy state because it's a real thing that's evolving. And actually, in our experience here in the physical reality, we find the same thing you can never get to a zero entropy state you can only approach it it's just like you can never go faster than the speed of light you can only approach it you know we call that in math asymptotic you can only get asymptotic to the answer but you can't ever get there hmm. in mathematics you can never get to infinity you can only approach it you see and it's like that you you can't really get to a zero entropy state here you can only approach it because there's always things going on in your system that's creating more energy and you're always making an effort to reduce entropy. And you have lots and lots and lots of individuated units of consciousness that are interacting, doing all sorts of things, creating good things and bad things all the time. So it's, a, it's just a, a live system that is evolving. So it doesn't start at some kind of uh, zero entropy perfect system. And then, for some reason, creates high entropy virtual realities or something. It's not like that. Uh, it's just a real finite system trying to stay alive and continuing to exist.
0: All right. Well, I guess where I'm coming from is the notion that once we talk about systems and states and and all that we've stepped well into the relative creation. We've gone past the four fundamental forces and whatever other levels of, of you know, manifestation there may be in in, in physical terms. And uh, there's all sorts of entropy and all sorts of pairs of opposites and all sorts of diversity and, and whatnot. But if we could reverse that process and get right back down to the real nitty gritty, before all that emerges, then wouldn't we there have arrived at a state of perfect? you know orderliness or freedom from entropy and you know a lot of the great saints Ramana Maharshi and people like that once upon their realization they say nothing ever happened the universe actually never arose they they sort of reside in a, in a place prior to the manifestation of the universe and prior to the emergence of of any sort of entropy or disorder
1: well if you think of the universe our physical universe as all there is Then you might tend to have that viewpoint. If you think of our physical universe as a virtual reality game generated for a purpose, then that viewpoint isn't quite so obvious. It's generated in a bigger system. So if you can take our physical universe, and yes, you can back it up, back it up to the point where it didn't exist. Okay, well, you can take a simulation, you can take the world of Warcraft and back it up and back it up to before it was the run button was hit before it ever generated anything and before that you might say well there was nothing and you may define nothing as perfect process because anything that is a thing well you know processes aren't perfect so the only way you get perfect processes is for there to be nothing no thing the null the void right that's the perfect thing because there's nothing there well that's more Word games, I think, that's more semantics, I should put it that way. That's more semantics. And it, it, I think that comes from a from a sense of this physical reality being all there is, being reality. Because indeed, that's true of our physical reality. You can back it up and back it up to the point that the run button hadn't been pushed yet.
0: And it's no longer it, physical.
1: It's no longer physical. It didn't exist. Right. And at that point, it was just potential. Everything was simply potential. And that's the concept of the void that holds all potential, but no thing.
0: And just okay. because we're incapable of perceiving it that way doesn't mean that ultimately it isn't that way. You know, I mean, I don't have quantum level perception or anything. I'm, I'm you know, we're macro organisms, right. that, you know, locked into a certain, you know, perceptual realm. But that doesn't mean that that's the ultimate reality certainly and i guess what what i'm getting at is enlightened people by definition may be those who have learned to reside at the level prior to manifestation and and yet function in the world of manifestation simultaneously to sort of straddle both realms as it were right
1: and what i would say that that is that is true And that does work that way, but what you're doing is you're learning to live in the larger system. See, this virtual reality is just a subset, a small subset of the larger system. And eventually you get to to go beyond this virtual reality. Now, if you think this virtual reality, this physical universe is all there is, now you feel like you've stepped beyond all that is into the great void or something and that's the terminology that's the poetry you use to describe that experience basically what you've done is you've let go of the physical you're no longer just attached to the physical but you realize yourself as consciousness Mm -hmm. you become a citizen of the larger consciousness system Mm. if you will rather than just a citizen of the physical universe and as a citizen of the larger consciousness system You can see the physical universe, its origins, where it came from, how it is that it's an illusion. All that stuff now makes sense to you because you can see it from that perspective. Well, you're just looking at it from a larger perspective within consciousness. And again, it's the descriptive poetry that comes out as, you know, it's all potential. It's the void, that sort of thing. And it's the the zero entropy, perfect place from which the source, you know, arises and all in all, but that's just poetical description for this concept that you're now outside of the physical universe. You're not there, but now you can be a part of it. You can still function here, Mm -hmm. but your consciousness is aware at a higher level of organization, if you will, at a lower entropy. You have transcended the physical, virtual reality, and now you're a part of the larger consciousness system, and you can live that way. People, you know, sometimes ask me, they say, do you still meditate? And I'll say, well, not actually in any kind of formal sense. I live in a meditation state. That's my life. You know, I don't go and meditate. I never stop in that sense. So just living, just being here, interacting is part of my meditation. And I'm not sure if I'm making sense to your readers or not. No, I think you are. But the point is that it's not something you go do and experience for a while. It's something you become. Right. And when you live in the larger consciousness system, that's the way your whole life is. You, you kind of see this physical system for what it is, a virtual reality training ground where we interact with each other, trying to learn to lower our entropy and make good choices and help the whole system survive and evolve. It's like playing the World of Warcraft, right? You've got a, a point there, things you're trying to do. And uh, that's the way it is here. And, and we have a purpose. There's reasons for us being here. And there's reasons why it is the way it is. And that's ours to deal with. And if we deal with that from an awareness of the larger system, then it's a totally different game. We're not entangled in this universe anymore. We kind of, I don't know how to say it, but we we interact. In the
0: world, world but not of it, as Jesus Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. In the world, but not of it would be a good way... To say it but that's just being a part of this larger consciousness system and you can actually work at that system because there are functions that we would call non-physical that service this virtual reality you know the the server that does World of Warcraft has other you know other services have to keep it going you know have to keep servicing it and functioning it and then uh, and you can work in those functions. You can see how it works. You can be a part of the structure. You can be part of the server that's creating the virtual reality as well as being in the virtual reality. So, yes, you're in it, but not but not of it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that is true. But when you try to explain that to people descriptively and poetically, then I think you get a lot of these words that you're talking about. You know, it's the perfect process. It's before the world began. It's the plenum and the void. It's the everything's potential. And we we start saying those things. But once you have a bigger picture than that, you can see that that actually is structured as well. That's part of a larger thing, this larger consciousness system. And you are are now aware at that level of consciousness as well as aware here at this level of Mm -hmm. consciousness. A lot of these are, are different ways of looking at the same thing. And I don't want to leave the impression that there is necessarily a right way and a wrong way to look at these things. For the individual, there's a productive way and a non-productive way of looking at these things. And whatever is productive for you, that's the way you ought to be looking at them now. And as you grow up, that will change and you'll look at them differently. You know, as you move on down your path, you know, your perspectives will change. So there isn't this is the way it is. You, know, you, need to, you, know, you, you need to take my metaphors. No, I'm not coming from there. I'm just saying this is a perspective, a way of looking at the problem. And if this helps you, if it's a perspective you can use, then good. You know? But if you already have a perspective you like, that's good too. Don't get attached to your perspective as being the truth. Get attached to your perspective as a, a waypost on a longer journey. And that is a better way of looking at it.
0: That's great. As I listen to you, you know, I don't hear anything that clashes with traditional spiritual, you know, spiritual traditions and and the descriptions by saints and sages throughout the ages. It's just you're using different terminology. And, you know, those people essentially had acquired the ability to experience a vast range of Creation from gross to subtle to transcendent, and to live actively with that expanded range, and um, that's kind of what I hear you saying here. That yes. You, yeah.
1: Yeah. I've never really run into any fundamental conflicts with you know the spiritual um, lessons and, and uh, you know poetry of the of the past and even of the present. What I have found, though, is that I understand it better. Yeah. I understand it because in my metaphors work good for me. I'm a physicist, you know, I'm a I'm this left-brained guy. I like logical process. I like things to make sense. So I, I want to be able to, if I really feel like I understand the larger reality, then I need to be able to take that understanding and derive quantum mechanics from it. I need to be able to take my metaphysics and derive, you know, relativity from it. And if I can't do that, then I must not really understand it. Because you see that's at a that's kind of a lower level of causality is this virtual reality, and if you 're at the higher level of causality, you ought to be able to understand why the things at the lower level of causality are the way they are, yeah, so if you really understand it, then you ought to be able to drive physics from your understanding of consciousness, and if you can't you don't really understand it as well as you think, so yeah. that 's kind of the way I come at it so That's an important thing for me because as a physicist, I want it all to flow together. I want to be able to see the whole big picture. Now, if I'm just talking about metaphysics and people growing up and becoming love and lowering their entropy and growth, well, that's what's really important. And you don't have to do any physics ever or do anything paranormal ever or do any of that sort of thing ever to succeed at what you're here for. So in that sense, all this stuff is extraneous, isn't really that important. See, it's mainly important to me because it's part of the way I verify that my understanding has some merit to it in that it enables me to logically deduce other things that I know. So I know that relativity and quantum mechanics exist. So I want to be able to deduce it from what I know. And if I can do that, that gives me some warm feeling that my consciousness theory has merit to it. It doesn't mean my consciousness theory is perfect or even that it's right. It just means that it's good enough that I can deduce physics from it, you know, and uh, there may be other points about it and things that I miss and so on. So it's not that it's complete, but at least it allows me to, you know, to do those kinds of things. So that's why it's important to me, but it's not, I get that a lot from people say, well, do I have to learn to go out of body in order to grow up in order to, you know, become love? And I go, no, 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 you don't have to do any of that stuff. All you have to do is get rid of fear, let go of the ego, you know, become love. That's the point. That's why you're here. Everything else is optional. That's the key thing. So you don't have to do physics, you don't have to do out-of-body, you don't have to understand my model or anybody else's model, you don't have to understand anything. It's not an intellectual process, it's a being process. If you can be love, if you can let go of that fear, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And now you've done it and you've done it all. You've done everything important. You've done everything important if you've done that.
0: Yep, that's what the Beatles said, right? All you need is love. Have you had much interaction with uh, other physicists who deal with consciousness? You know, John Hagelin, Menas Kafatos, Peter Russell, uh, that guy in Hawaii whose name I forget at the moment. Um, Have you had much collaboration or discussion with them?
1: None. I haven't had any uh, discussion or collaboration with them yet. When I first started this back in, you said I, I published this in 2003, in February, and I did. And within probably six months of that, I sent copies of My Big Toe out to such people. Not only the people working in consciousness, but the people working in virtual reality and intelligence, artificial intelligence, that kind of thing, because this is a theory of consciousness as well as physics and to some physics people and whatever. And after sending out about 50 books or so, I got absolutely zero back. And that taught me a lesson. The lesson is that you don't start at the top. These guys are busy. They don't have the time to sit down and read an 850-page book. They don't even have the time to dial up a video. They are in their they're at the top of their game. They're completely busy with that game and they're invested in their own theories and what they're doing and that's not the place to start. The place to start is at the bottom. The place to start is with John Doe and Alice Doe and uh, talk to people and not to teach them physics, but to just give them the idea that love is the answer. All you need is love, right? Mm -hmm. You know, God is love. You can pull this from a lot of traditions. Mm -hmm. In any case, that's where you start. And when that becomes a large enough of a crowd, it will attract the attention of these folks. Then they will read the 800 pages because now it somehow is impacting what they're doing and the scientists will pay attention because it's impacting what they're doing and those guys will be drug along, either they'll join or they'll be drug kicking and screaming you know, into the future. So I decided that that's not the place to go. Now I'm open to it and in March I'm going to be presenting at an IAC, Institute of, I don't remember now, but it's a group, it's Consciousness Studies okay? and it's having a meeting in Portugal. I think in uh, March sometime, it's forward ahead of my calendar, but anyway, that's, so I'll go there and I'll address a lot of these people who are, uh, have been researching, who attend this conference, and hopefully that will kind of at least introduce my ideas to them, but no, I have not collaborated with any other people in the field, I think that's probably not the way it goes, I think when they want to talk to me, they'll call me, I won't, I won't call them, you know, because that's the way it is, you know, when you are the upstart, it's don't call me, you know, I'll call you if I I'll call you if I need you. You know, they are the people who have the visibility and are important and I'm not. So, that's good. I'm open, I'm available, but uh I don't think the time's ready for that yet. I'm still new and not much on the map. Well,
0: I'd like to see you come to the science and non-duality conference in San Jose next October and get up on a stage with a couple of those physicists that I just mentioned. I think you'd be uh, very warmly received and, you know, you could give them the nutshell version of what you're doing rather than lay an 800 page poem
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. on them.
0: Yeah, I'll, yeah. Talk to, I'll talk to you about that.
1: Yeah, okay, um, that'd be fine. I'd be very glad to do that.
0: So I'm sure we have, I have plenty of questions in the back of my head, and I'm sure that we have yet to unfold a large portion of what you would like to talk about. So give me the next lead. Uh, based on what we've said so far, fill in the next gap in, in uh, you know, what you would like to present.
1: Well, you know, I come to these interviews, not uh, with an agenda, but just I'm trying to give people
0: an overview, though. So, yeah. You know, Tom Campbell in two hours. Let's get, you know. the whole. Right.
1: Thing. Well, one of the things that we should talk about then, we've talked some about theory and some about process and kind of big picture uh, metaphysical stuff. We've talked some about science, but we haven't talked about the question, what difference does it make to me? I'm just a person out here living my life, trying to get along the best I can. The world seems to be a pretty harsh place and what should I be doing you know what what is my purpose and uh, what how does this affect me what does your theory say about me and my life and what I'm doing and how I'm doing it that's an important part of it you have to not get lost in the theory and all the big picture things because for most people that's nice to think about but it doesn't actually it's not news they can apply to their daily life it's like okay have all these big thoughts now, you know, I'll turn off the TV and, or I'll turn off my monitor and, and I'll go deal with the world. And the dealing with the world has to be a part of this. It has to have, you know, you have to have traction there as well. So we didn't get to that part.
0: All right, let's talk and, about that. So, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that all this spiritual stuff or even scientific stuff, if we want to put it in those terms, has to have very direct relevance to your personal life or else it's all just fancy. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. On every level. I mean, you know, your happiness, your behavior, your ethics, your health, you know, it should have an impact on all this stuff.
1: It does. It has to have a very big impact. If it doesn't, you know, I call it mind candy, you know, I mean, it's, it's fun to chew on, but it uh, doesn't really put any money in your pocket. It doesn't really help you get by in in the world. And it should, if it's real, if you really understand consciousness and the larger conscious system, it says something very, Profound about each person and why they're here and what they should be doing and uh, the nature of their existence and why is the world the way it is? You know, they I get a lot of that. Say, oh, I just look around me, I read the news and watch TV, and the world is really a horrible place. You know, how could this be? You know, a learning ground for evolving equality of consciousness when there hardly is any equality in consciousness. You know, what's going on here? So there's those kinds of questions that people have that I think has to be. Like you say, relevancy to the individual, and not just to some individuals, but to every individual. Mm -hmm.
0: And the world being a horrible place gives me a nice place to stick a, a, a question or a point in, which is that I'm of the opinion that all these terrible problems that beset us have as their ultimate solution the infusion of consciousness into the world through individual you know, human beings, and that, and if that infusion were <clears throat> really complete and profound enough, all these you know intractable problems would begin to dissipate.
1: I agree with that completely. That's a good summary. I uh, would go a little further and say that this very harsh, we might even say, terrible environment that we exist in here in our physical reality here on planet Earth, and the people that seem to seem to be. Uh, that we have to interact with, you know, we, we have lots of fear, we have lots of greed, we have lots of ego, we have all of this this negative, high entropy stuff that's kind of in our in our environment all the time. Well, what we see here is a very accurate representation of what we are. This is what we create. This exactly. is the level of our consciousness. You're looking at the collective quality of humanity's consciousness, when you watch the news, this is who we are. And we have created this by being who we are. And you are absolutely right. When we grow up, when we increase the quality of our consciousness enough, all the problems will just go away. They will fix themselves, you see. And that happens as we learn to become love, as we learn to cooperate, as we learn to work together. Becoming love, cooperating, working together, and um, compassion, all these things are ways of lowering entropy. They're ways of building. There's ways of helping. You see, whereas things like fear, greed, ego, these are all things that tear apart. These are all things that put barriers between us. And these are all things moving toward higher entropy. So yes, if when we grow up, It won't matter what form of government we have. If the people grow up, that government will adjust itself to reflect those people. And if those people are loving, kind people, they'll have a loving, kind government. If those people are greedy, you know, egotistical, self-serving, fearful people, they will have a self-serving, greedy government. And same with economic system and same with other thing else. So we can go out and try to fix symptoms like change the government, you know, change the economic system, do this, do that, get out this leader, put in another leader, but that's all symptomatic solutions. Now symptomatic solutions aren't necessarily bad. You know. Law is a symptomatic solution. Criminal law I'm talking about is a symptomatic solution. If people weren't self-serving, greedy, uh, you know, egotistical and fearful, you wouldn't need criminal law because everybody would relate to each other with caring and love and compassion. We need criminal law to get us by in the meantime because we're not like that. So it, so treating the symptom gives us a more civilized environment in which to grow in. So treating symptoms aren't necessarily bad ideas, but realize you're just treating symptoms. You're not helping the cause go away. And if all you do is treat symptoms, you will treat those symptoms forever because you know it's just you know medicine does the same thing you know if you have medicine that just treats symptoms then you just go back with more and more symptoms and once you put this you know get rid of this symptom another one will pop up because you're expressing yourself in this reality and uh, you can put in the kindest gentlest head of state ever and figure that's going to solve the problem but look what happens you know 50 years later it's right back to the way it was that guy's been disposed of you know he didn't reflect the people. The people create structures and institutions that represent themselves, that are of the quality they are of. And the only way to fix these problems fundamentally is for every individual to grow up and, and uh, you know, become love, decrease their entropy
0: brilliant I just lo- I love everything you just said I was I, w- I wasn't on camera, but I was giving you these thumbs up and no- <laughs> nodding my head. <laughs> Great stuff yeah. I mean an, an analogy I've often lo- like to use is like you know if you're flying over a forest in an airplane and it looks all gray and withered and dry it's because all the trees individually are unhealthy you know and so what are you going to do? you can't spray paint the forest or something. you have to somehow attend to each tree. And then when when each tree is actually beginning to flourish from within itself, you you fly over again and you see a green forest. But it really has to be on the level of each individual tree.
1: Absolutely. Uh, We are all individuated units of consciousness. And we are part of the larger consciousness system. And our evolution, as we evolve individually, the larger conscious system evolves because we're part of it. So we decrease the entropy of our consciousness a little bit, then the whole system then decreases its entropy a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you see we're the larger conscious system's strategy or one of its strategies for survival, for evolving, for growing. And it's all individual. Yeah, you can't affect changes from without. Change has to come from within, and we're all individuals, and each individual must change himself. You can't go out and force anybody else to change themselves. It has to be done from the inside out, cannot be imposed from the outside in, and it's an individual person-to-person thing, and it has to be self-motivated.
0: Yeah, but what's implied by what you just said is that if you are changing yourself, you're also changing the field. And if the field changes, then it becomes more kind of um, conducive to other people catching that, you know, and beginning to undergo changes themselves. And that seems to be what's happening in the world today. There's this kind of mass awakening taking place, and all kinds of people are just sort of beginning to wake up, sometimes quite dramatically and unexpectedly without any kind of spiritual practice or interest in such things at all. They just... All of a sudden, have this dramatic. So there, yes. there, there's there's something in the water, so to speak. Yeah, yeah the, and the way that
1: works is that in this in this system of individuated units of consciousness, all of these chunks of consciousness are netted. We're all connected with each other. You see, we all communicate. We share information. We share data, and we're we're sharing it through the consciousness system, not just physically here through talking and you know signs and that kind of thing. We, we uh, shared data. That's what created um, uh, Carl Jung's archetypes. Okay, Cultures have certain things that they share with with their culture. Um, if you join an organization, you start to become more and more like the people and the goals and the ideas in that organization. It's because we communicate. Now, we know this on the negative side. It's called mob psychology. You get a bunch of angry, upset people together, and their behavior degenerates to the lowest common denominator among them. That's because they're passing around this information. They're making each other more angry and less aware. And it works in the opposite way. Get a bunch of people who are highly evolved in their consciousness, who are very loving and caring, and it does the same thing. It helps pull up because we're all netted together so we have this influence and yes if we clean up our act and we become more love and less fear then those around us have a little better environment for them to grow up in it helps tug them up a little bit and as we are full of ego and fear and all about us we pull people down around us down to our level so Mm -hmm. that's just the way it works we have to do this all together But we do it individually you can give somebody a better environment for them to grow but they have to do the growing themselves from within
0: so we started this section of the interview by you introducing the notion that this has to have practical significance in person in people's day-to-day lives Yeah, and you were speaking about love and kindness and compassion and all that stuff. I guess the question is, which is the cart and which is the horse? Or or to use another example, I mean, you pull any one leg of a table and all the other legs come along, but which is the easiest leg to pull? Where do you get the most leverage? Are love and kindness and compassion just symptoms? And you're not going to just begin displaying them by trying to impose them on yourself behaviorally? Or are those viable legs to pull, so to speak, and you can actually raise your consciousness by willfully being more loving, compassionate, and so on?
1: Any way that you can get there is a good way to get there, <laughs> but there are some ways that are easier than others, and depends on the culture and how you approach life and how you approach reality as to which ways are best for you. The point is, though, the growth that has to take place has to take place at what I call the being level. I separate the being level from the intellectual level. If it's at the intellectual level and stays at the intellectual level, well then it's just so much theory and so much talk and so much good ideas, but if it doesn't ever make it into your being level, the being level being a representation of just who you are, okay? then you know, it has to get there. That's where the growth takes place. If it stays in the intellectual level then it's it's just an idea the difference here is let's say that you see a little old lady having trouble getting across a very busy street and she can't walk very fast and she's afraid she's going to get stuck halfway out and so on and if you you can have two approaches to this you can say well i could help her and if i helped her All these people would would think I was a really good guy, and then I could go tell my people at work about how I helped this little old lady, and it would be a really good thing for me to do. I should help her because that would be helpful to her, and I'd feel really good about me too, you see. And you helping her because you think it's a good idea. Well, that's civilizing. It's helpful. It helps the little old lady get across the street. That is a good thing to do, but there's another way to approach it, and that if you see the little old lady and because of the compassion and connection you have with her and her plight you immediately go to help her just because it's who you are and it's the right thing to do all right now we can look at those two things one was an intellectual decision not a bean level decision and the second was a bean level decision it was an expression of who you are as opposed to what you think you should be or how you think you should act now they were both helpful to the little old lady because in either case she gets across the street But. If the intellectual effort turns into an understanding at the being level, then the intellect has been a big help. That's a leg you can pull on. If the intellectual effort just stays intellectual, that all you're doing is acting rather than being, then you will be a more civilized person. You'll help more little old ladies, but you're not going to grow the quality of your consciousness by acting, but the acting wanting. Now, the, the, the difference between those is if you really want to grow and lower your entropy, if you really want to become love and get rid of your fear, then the acting will probably move over into being because that's your desire. That's where you want to go. That's your goal. If, on the other hand, you're acting because you think it's the thing to do, because you think you'll get extra points for you know being helpful you'll earn a you know a, a merit badge a, you know gold star on your on your merit badge and so on and you're just acting you don't really have a deep desire to grow up you have a better you have a deep desire to impress other people get your merit badge and that kind of thing then it probably won't convert so the difference is is are you really committed to growing up or are you committed to having a good image if you're committed to growing up then i think Pulling that intellectual leg will help because with that commitment, one will move into the other because you really want to do that growth. If you don't, if you're just trying to create a good image and appear to be grown up and appear to be helpful and appear to be compassionate because it's good for business or, you know, whatever makes your ego feel good about itself then you're not going to capitalize on that. So it depends on the individual, what they're ready for and what they really want to do. And I call that intent. Depends on their intent. Why are they helping that little lady across the street? Mm-hmm. If the intent is right, then growth will happen.
0: That's great. So I guess the next question would be, how do we um, in, enliven and intensify that intent? There's a lot of a lot of spiritual you know, s- teachers have said that the desire for God is itself the way to him and that the more intense that desire the more readily quickly fully God will be realized Um, and so what can we do to kind of fan the flames of our intent and make it as ardent and as sincere as possible
1: okay well I have a very short little system for that that I think will help a lot of people and and kind of change the way they they look at life right now Well, let me back up to the beginning. The way life works for us is that stuff happens and we have to deal with it. That's just the way life works. We go through life and stuff happens. Sometimes it's good stuff and sometimes it's bad stuff, but it happens. And when it happens, we have to deal with it. Okay, so if that's a good model of life, how do we approach that? Well, most of us approach that by trying to manipulate the stuff that happens to be the stuff that we want to happen. We want good things to happen. So we manipulate as best we can other people, other events, you know, our children, our spouses, our boss, you name it, everything in our life, we try to manipulate it so it comes out good for us, okay? So we're concerned. We take most of our focus and energy on how can I manipulate everything that's coming toward me that's going to happen so that when it gets to me, it happens good. It breaks good, not breaks bad, okay? That's where we focus, what we should be focusing on is not on what happens and how to manipulate it to be good. We should accept mostly things happen because they happen. And I don't mean that you shouldn't never plan for anything. That's not my point. But if we focus instead on the intent, okay, the quality of how am I going to deal with it? Let it happen. But deal with it in the right way. Deal with it with caring. Deal with it with love. Deal with it because you're trying to help other deal with it without fear. You say, now, if you do that, if you focus on how you deal with it, now you will grow up. You will begin to evolve the quality of your consciousness. As long as you are focused on how can I make it happen right? How can I program my life to end up being a good one? You've got your focus on the wrong part of the problem. Move your focus to stuff happens. How do I deal with it? like I said doesn't mean you can't plan you know obviously you have to get a job so you can pay your mortgage and pay off your car payment because you need a house to live in and you need a car to get to work so you have a job to pay those two things off you see so there's that kind of planning has to go on I don't mean you just sit and forget everything and, and just you know take everything go live in a cave and deal with what comes in the cave entrance it's not doesn't have to be that drastic I'm just saying focus your attention from being almost 100% focused on manipulating the future to the present to focused on how am I dealing with it? Why am I dealing with it this way? What is my point here? What's my intent for this? And why is it? If you do that, then that will be just that shift in focus will be probably all you need to help you see things in in a better light. Now, you can go to uh, other ways of saying the same thing. People will tell you to live in the moment, be here now, you know, focus on what's happening now and deal with that in the correct way. And it's a similar way of saying that same thing. It's being uh, being present, being focused on what you're doing and more why you're doing it. That's your intent. Why are you doing it? And particularly focus if you feel something that's negative, if you feel anxiety, if you feel hurt, if you feel anger, if you feel any of those things, if you feel insignificance, you feel uh, whatever, uh, any negative kind of feeling, that is ego. And the ego is there because of a fear. Trace the fear back. Trace that ego back to the fear. What causes me to feel angry, to be upset? Why am I upset? And you'll find that there is a fear there is why you're upset. Once you realize what the fear is, then you need to have courage to outgrow that fear. First, you have to accept the fear. You have to look it right in the eye and say, yes, that's my fear. And you may or may not know where it comes from. Might be helpful to you to find out where it comes from and it might not make any difference, but that's your fear. Now, what are you gonna do about it? You're gonna continue to run and hide or will you just face it and let it go? And you will find, most everybody will find, that all the fears that push us around, make us do and say and feel the things we do and say and feel, are paper tigers. Once you face the fear, accept it and try to just let it go. Nothing terrible happens. It's belief. We believe then terrible things will happen. So we're trapped in that belief. So if you have the courage to face that fear, you can face it down and find that, Life goes on and you're a lot happier and a lot lighter and you feel a lot better. And if you just make that a practice of every time you feel upset, every time you feel annoyed, every time you're unhappy about something and you have any of these negatives, go find the fear that's feeding it and try to just let it go. Just be with it. And if you can do that, it's hard at first. Don't try to tackle every problem and every fear all at once. Just pick one deal with that. When you succeed, deal with the next one. And you will find that much to most people's chagrin, they find that they are driven by fear in almost every facet of their life. Most all the decisions they make, feelings they have, things that they say and do are driven by their fears. And they don't realize that until they start looking for these fears. And then it's like, oh my God, you know, look, everything I do is because of fear. And once you start to clean that out, you become a much happier, much more successful, much more caring. And it just makes all the difference in the world. So that's a simple thing to do. Focus on why do I feel this negative thing, trace it back to its roots, and then pull those roots up and let it go. Easy to say, not as easy to do, but it can be done. If you have an intent to succeed at it, you will succeed at it.
0: So I guess in a nutshell, what you're saying is that to culture uh, a kind of a more self-reflective, introspective way of dealing with the world rather than just sort of reacting blindly to cir- circumstances as they come along, kind of have, you know, have your, your vision both in and out at the same time. Yes. and And, um, you know... Why is this happening? Why am I reacting to it this way? Am I, is this just a knee jerk response or, or, you know, can I kind of get to the root of, of why I'm tending to react this way and perhaps not react this way if have a little bit of self reflection and, and nip it in the bud. Am I correct? And in, in yeah, that's summarizing? exactly right.
1: Yeah. And the key there is you have to have the desire to grow up. You yeah. have to have the want, the desire, the intent to, increase the quality of your consciousness, to evolve, uh, to, to grow past the fear. I would think one of the
0: pillars of Buddhism is right intent.
1: Yeah. Intent's the motivator in this larger consciousness system. Yeah. Intent does another thing that I might add, we haven't mentioned yet, but uh, intent also can modify future <coughs> probability. How so? Well, in a virtual reality, this is a probabilistic virtual reality. It's not a deterministic virtual reality. It's a probabilistic virtual reality. And there is this database, if you will, of possible things that could happen next and the probability that they will. That's just part of the mechanism of generating this virtual reality. You can modify that probability that they will part, the probability of something happening with your intent. That's part of the feedback here, and that's an interesting thing because then people can use that to help themselves grow. Uh, Everybody's heard of the placebo effect. Well, how does the placebo effect work? Well, it works because people think they intend to get better because they believe that this medicine is going to help them, and that intent actually changes the probability of them getting better, lowers the probability of them staying ill. That's how mental healing works. You know, that's how we affect this reality. That's part of the way we create this reality through our intentions. We manifest those things that uh, meet those intentions. So if our intentions are very self-serving, if our intentions are trying to, you know, grab as much as we can grab and that sort of thing, if they're fear-based, then we create a fear-based environment. You know, we don't get to make this reality entirely because there's lots of people here and we're interacting. But we do get to make it to some degree. We do get to influence it. Let's put it that way. And we can modify those probabilities with our intent. So intent is the prime mover. Intent is what moves data. If I want to communicate with you telepathically, it's my intent that accomplishes that. I send the data to you. If I want to have a conversation with you from the non-physical, it's my intent. And your intent needs to be open to that. Your intent needs to be the receiver. So it's that kind of thing. Intent is what moves information. And this is an information system. So we can modify probability, we can connect with other people, we can grow up, all of it. Like you say, the fundamental pillar there is intent. What do you really want to do here? You know, What's your motivation?
0: Would intent also be very much related to perspective? Like, let's say this example just came to mind. Let's say two people are sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon and one is just marveling at the beauty of it and having this awe-inspiring experience, and the other person is depressed and miserable and the whole thing just looks meaningless to them and they feel like jumping off. There's such a variance among all of us individuals in this world in terms of how we perceive the very same situations. Does that relate at all to what you were just saying?
1: It's not the same as intent, what that is is interpretation. We get data. This is another way that we create our reality, it's a separate way. We get data, okay, here we are, these these individuated units of consciousness playing in a virtual reality game. We have data streams and we have to interpret that data. We just get the sense data, then we interpret it. And of course we have internal data too, Our, our imagination creates data. We get sense data, we think, and create data. We take all this data and we interpret it. One person will look at that Grand Canyon and say, wow, what a marvelous work of nature. It feels good just to sit here and be a part of this magnificent thing. And the other person sees the same site but interprets it very differently. They see that thing and they say, yeah, it's grand and wonderful, but you know, it, I'm not really a part of that. I'm small and miserable. I'm not grand and wonderful. I can't connect with anything grand and wonderful because that's just, I just don't relate to that. I've never been any place that was grand and wonderful. I'm always small and miserable and unhappy and da 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 da. So the interpretation is different. One embraces it, the other rejects it, but they see the same thing. But that's the way they're interpreting their data. One, the thing is a wonderful wonderful thing to behold. The other, it's just pointing out a consistent failure in their life to amount to anything because something grand and wonderful just makes them feel smaller and and more failed so it's just a way of interpreting the data and that then brings up a subject we haven't mentioned yet called decision space the person who is sitting there marveling at the wonder has a much larger decision space decision space is all of those choices that you have that you know you have that you can make Okay, you have choices. Now, he could choose to feel good, he could choose to feel bad, he could choose all sorts of things. He has lots of choices in front of him. The person who is very unhappy and miserable has a very small decision space. They can't choose to be happy. They can't choose all that. All they can choose is just from this narrow set of bad, worse, and, and worse yet. You know, That's it's all of their decision space they have to choose from. They're limited in what they can see. The choices that they can make. That's like if somebody comes and they say something rude to you, you have choices. You can choose to be angry, you can choose to say something rude back, you can choose to smile and and uh, you know say excuse me or something and go away. You have lots of choices you can make. Well people who are angry and upset, their decision space gets very narrow. All they can do is spit back. They can't, they don't have the choices to do any of those other things because their decision space is so narrow. Well As your consciousness grows, your decision space grows. As your consciousness shrinks, your decision space shrinks. And our free will is just the freedom to choose any one of those things in the decision space. Any decision we make and how we react and how we think and how we interpret, these are all our choices. And the free will is to choose from those things that are in our decision space. So So that's the difference, It's it's a choice, it's an interpretation. It's a small consciousness with a small world, you know, living in a small space where it's an expanded consciousness in a bigger world living in a bigger space.
0: So if our consciousness becomes vast, oceanic, you know, unbounded, do we have kind of an infinite decision space?
1: Um, yeah, not infinite, but very large. Very large, yeah. We get a very large decision space.
0: And yet, ironically, you hear people talk who are living in that kind of state that everything is kind of on automatic. They just spontaneously act in accordance with the will of God, if they put it that way. And there isn't a lot of individual deliberation and, and choosing so, going on. They're, they're more like just going with the flow so profoundly yes. that they're, they're hardly making decisions.
1: Right, absolutely. They are making decisions, but they're making them all at the being level, yeah. not at the intellectual level. Mm-hmm. You see? So they're not aware of making them because you're aware of what you do in your intellect. You know, that's kind of your awareness. But when you work from the being level, you just make that, you help that little old lady just because she needs help. You don't think about anything else. You just do it. It's not a choice. Well, should I do this? Let's see, how busy am I? I got a meeting in a little while. Do I have the time? You're not, your intellect isn't working. It's just something you have to do because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So that's true. They are making decisions, but they're making them at the being level. Now, there's an interesting thing about, about this, the, the fear and the, and the being level and decisions, and that is we, we talk about this subconscious. We have this subconscious mind. And in the subconscious, we have lots of fears and other kinds of things that cause us to react badly, uh, you know, get angry or something because it's triggered one of, our, one of our trigger points and all the subconscious stuff going on. Once you have a larger consciousness and a larger decision space, The subconscious disappears. You don't have a subconscious. It's just you at the being level, you see, and you interact at the being level. You're Mm. not thinking about what should I do, how will that make me appear, what will that do for my image, you just do because you do and you don't have to think about it because it's not an intellectual. You live at the being level. Mm. And when you live at the being level, you're aware of everything. You don't have these things that come up. And suddenly make you angry because you've got buttons that get pushed. You don't have any buttons that get pushed. All the buttons are gone. You see, you're aware of all of you. That part of you that's instinctual. That's part of you that uh, you know is is a is a member of a culture. That part of you that you know helps little old ladies. All of that you're aware of all of it, and you just be it. And it's all at one with you. It's not fighting over these choices. So the subconscious is basically. You know, it's an artifact of fear. It's an artifact of ego. You get rid of the fear and ego, and the subconscious goes away. Now, when Freud looked at people and decided that a subconscious was a component of consciousness, that's because all the people he looked at were normal people who were all full of fear and ego. So that's why he came to that decision. Because, yes, all the people seem to have that, but it's a dysfunctional part of our consciousness that's there because of our fear and our ego so these people you talk about yes they are making decisions they're making a lot of decisions but they don't have to think about it because they're not acting they're just being
0: there's a vedic saying from somewhere or other that says brahman is the charioteer you know which basically is what you're saying that the being space is actually holding the reins of the chariot and you know guiding it this way and that without mm-hmm. the individuality kind of being in the way
1: yeah, yeah and you know you can have an intellect you can have thinking and you can have that at the being level right and the, the being level the, doesn't have to be doesn't have to be out of it you know it's not like oh you're an airhead that just drifts through life and people have to you know tell you to sit down and eat and you know take you to the bathroom <laughs> it's not like that at all. Right. you're completely aware you can think but it's thinking without serving ego you see you're not serving fear so the intellect that i'm kind of bad-mouthing here that we you know is, is the intellectual level it's not a bad level thinking is fine and you can think in the service of love but thinking in the service of fear is what most of us do and that's what we call then ego
0: yeah so what you're saying essentially is that all these faculties we have intellect mind senses and so on uh you know they can either be out of alignment or in alignment with the being level and if they're in alignment then they still function but they function. You know, um, in, a, in the service of evolution.
1: Yeah. They, sur- they, they function without fear.
0: Right. A fellow in uh, the UK sent me some kind of scientific questions. I wonder if you want to take a few minutes to address sure. some of these. It might be fun. So, I'll just start running through them. We'll see how it goes. He said, you might address his opinion of the high priesthood of science just, quote, making stuff up, unquote to fit the equations. Comment, uh, there's like a half a dozen questions here, so if you wanna just comment briefly on each one, I'll I'll run through them.
1: Okay, yes, um, the way science works now is that we have this belief in materialism and we call it material reductionism because it reduces materialism down to particles. Everything's built up out of particles. Well, when you have this theory, you have your, your science based on this Philosophical premise: What happens is that you make your science fit your theory. You make your science. Let me give you an example. He mentioned uh, the
0: Higgs boson as, as yeah, possibly. Yeah, we an talk example.
1: about particles, Higgs bosons, and things. Let's just take something simple like an electron, okay. because you know, because electrons flowing in wires, we get to talk to each other on Skype. You see, so electrons are really part of our everyday business and everyday life. Yet there is no such thing really as an electron as a particle, what happens in the way science works is they see an effect, okay, now they see an effect of something like a charge moving through space, let's say that's the electron there, they're seeing an effect of that, then they make a model up to describe it, okay, now the model then is, it's a little ball of mass with a charge, negative charge, and then that's our electron, but you see they just made that up. The effect is real. The electron is a model to explain the effect. We don't realize that this electron that we made up is just a model. It may or may not be correct. It's a model to explain the effect. So we make it up. Because it suits us. Why? Because in a materialistic world, well, it has to be a little ball of mass, right? It's a little chunk of mass. If it exists, it has to be a chunk of mass. Well, physicists and,
0: don't really believe that anymore, do they? I mean, they've gone no, beyond well, that's that. No,
1: the, that's the thing. They, physicists now have realized that that model is wrong. There are no electrons. There are probability distributions, you see? <laughs> But they still talk about the world in Newtonian terms. So if you talk to a physicist, you'd find that he was kind of schizophrenic in the sense that he would tell you, yeah, we really don't believe those electrons are little chunks of mass with charge anymore. We think they are uh, points with the attributes of charge and mass. Okay, And there's, there's a difference there. But then in the next breath, he will be telling you things that basically tell you that, yes, of course, particle theory is right. And yes, electron is a particle and uh, particles make up the world. And you say, but I thought you just said it really wasn't a particle. Oh, well, it's a quantum particle. And you see, quantum particles aren't really particles, but we call them quantum particles because it makes us feel better to call it a particle. It's actually a probability distribution, but nobody really understands that. So we just ignore it and call it weird science and, you know, shut up and calculate and go on. And so you, you find him to be very mixed. He wants to cling to his materialistic viewpoint because that's what he feels intuitively, you know, the way the world is, but his science is telling him that it's not like that. That materialistic viewpoint is wrong, and rather than saying, well, you know, our assumption here must be wrong, they say, well, that's just weird science and nobody will ever know, but um, let's go on. That's the way it is. So, yes, science makes things up. In particle theory, they come up with an equation and it doesn't work. Okay, They've come up with their equation based on a materialistic world and it just doesn't work, so they come up with a fudge factor. So they multiply it or add some number to it or do something else to make it work. And then they call this term that they had to add to it to make it work. Something like uh, dark matter or dark energy or magic stuff. You know, things that nobody can see, nobody can tell. They've never been sensed, but we need them to make our equation work. So we make this up and we give them a name and they must exist. Otherwise, our equation wouldn't work. Nobody questions the fact that the equation might be based on the wrong paradigm to begin with. So I think that's probably what he's, he's talking about. We, we scientists make models and then we believe that our models are true. We believe electrons exist and that uh, Higgs particles exist and all this. If you button them down to it, they'll tell you, well, they're just not really particle particles like we think of particles, but yeah, they're particles. So just the way science is now, they're they're in, a, they're in a transition, so they're a little a little goofy on those points.
0: You know how I guess it was the Ptolemaic worldview where they thought those Earth was at the center of things, and they had to derive all these really complicated theories right. as to why the planets seemed to go the way they did and they, they right. had all these loops, and they went retrograde and all this strange stuff was happening in order to explain, how, you know, how, how the planets move. Yeah, so then, you know, when we put the sun at the center of things, then all the, the planetary motions kind of made sense. So in terms of where science is at now, using that as a metaphor, do you feel like science or a large percentage of scientists are still concocting elaborate theories to explain planetary motions without ha- they haven't really put the sun metaphorically speaking at the center of things.
1: Yeah, that's correct. That's a good way to put it. The problem was that their their paradigm was wrong. Their fundamental belief was that the earth must be at the center. Mm-hmm. And if you start with that belief, it makes everything else then has to be very complicated to try to force it to fit that belief. And we do that a lot in science. We have a lot of things that we are forcing the science to maintain our belief in materialism, and it just doesn't work. But the problem that the scientists are having now that you know, 20, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, that wasn't a problem. They could pretend that electrons were just little chunks of mass and that sort of thing. But all their experiments these days keep pointing them in a different direction. The double-slit experiment goes all the way back to the early 1900s big arrow pointing them away from materialism because materialism can't answer that problem, how that works. So they've been ignoring it. Back in the early 1900s, Bohr said, well, we could follow this from a sense of reality as probability. Or somebody said, we could just claim that they were all particles, just different particles that aren't really massy and, you know, whatever. And when the vote was taken, everybody felt better with particles. They've been in denial for almost a hundred years now, but the experiments keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. And now, today, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of scientists, physicists, who agree that reality is virtual reality. Hmm. It's just information. Now they haven't yet taken the logical conclusions that that leads to. They've kind of not wanted to go there. There's a couple of logical conclusions that you have to ask right away. Well if it's just information you know where's the information come from how does the information get there and then you say well it's calculated well if it's calculated what's the algorithm who's calculating it who's the programmer you say you can't have a virtual reality create itself it has to be created elsewhere you know the world of warcraft which is the world that the little elves run around in with the rivers and lakes and trees and rocks that are in world of warcraft that couldn't create itself it had to be created someplace else, and where it was created has to be outside of that reality. The server that creates World of Warcraft can't be inside the World of Warcraft world. It has to be outside, and the consciousness that uh, animates those World of Warcraft characters, World of Warcraft avatars, which is the players sitting at their desktop computers, they have to exist outside of that virtual reality. That's just the, you know, it's the way it has to work. You can't have it any other way. The virtual reality cannot compute itself. So anyway, they haven't gone to those logical consequences yet, but they are being driven very hardly toward the idea that reality is just information. It's informational. But then the logical consequence is that is that it's a simulation. Logical consequence of that is that the simulation You know, where does it come from? And then the consciousness theory that I generate gives those answers. Where does it come from? You know, why is it a simulation? And how does it get done? And where did it come from? And and so on. What are the algorithms? And it kind of answers all that stuff. So science is being driven there. Uh, They just have been in denial for a long time. They're still denying, but they're being drug, kicking and screaming by their own experiments to admit that reality is virtual.
0: Yeah, somebody or other said that science progresses by a series of funerals. You know, <laughs> otherwise, the old ones die yeah. off.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that's probably the case. You know, scientists also have this this problem with things not being materialistic. See, back in the bad old days when Galileo was uh, under house arrest for uh, coming up with ideas that didn't support the beliefs at the time, and uh, Other people uh, would get into trouble because they didn't support the beliefs at the time. Scientists feel that they were instrumental in breaking out of that mold of a stranglehold of, of belief that couldn't be challenged. So they now feel that if they go back to this airy concept of virtual reality and in other and other isn't in this reality frame, suddenly they feel like they're stepping back into the other, see, what's other? Well, it's something in some other reality and it's our creator. It's, the, it's where the virtual reality comes from, you see. Mm-hmm. Now it's like stepping backwards into uh, where they came from and that scares them. Uh-huh. They have fear about losing control of rationality if they go to a place that they don't understand and if they admit that that place that they don't understand is more fundamental than this place that we have because it's the creator and we're the created uh, piece of it. So that's kind of where their back is against the wall. They don't want to go there and they don't want to say virtual reality out loud because that's where it logically takes them. Mm. And so that's kind of their problem. But the point is they have a belief trap now that keeps them limited. They can't see a bigger picture Until they change paradigms, until they escape that belief trap. And until they escape it, they're stuck in this this little picture that doesn't work anymore, that doesn't explain their experiments. You see, so experiments are pushing them to take that step. They're resisting mightily because they don't understand it. They won't be in control of it. It is outside of the physical process, which they say is all there is. It's just this physical process. Reality is material. And... They have a big, you see the problem that they, that they have with this. It's, uh, it's a scary thing to do. And uh, so it's not just they're being pigheaded, but they are frightened about going backwards to a point where the non-physical was the driver. And, you know, where the, we're the high priests weren't scientists. Where the high priests were theologians, and they don't want to go back there. That's, the, that's where they escape and they don't want to go back, and they're afraid of it because they can't manipulate it and don't own it. They Uh. own the physical world, you see, but they they don't own this other, and uh, that's scary.
0: I would suggest that the reason they shouldn't be afraid, though, is that we're not talking about going back to a a time when beliefs without any experiential foundation are being rammed down our throats. We're talking about uh, actually exploring all this stuff experientially and you know doubting everything not believing things because some book says so or some priest says so or something but actually you know nailing all this down ex- experientially and i would just add that if people find this whole discussion of paradigms and people clinging to their paradigms and all interesting be sure to read thomas kuhn's the structure of scientific revolutions it's like the classic on this whole this whole topic yes. <clears throat> Okay, here's another question from this guy in the UK. He said, Tom's approach seems similar to Bernardo Kastrup's uh, regarding the, quote, most parsimonious explanation, parsimonious meaning simplest uh, stance of his theory, in that it attempts to explain from the fewest assumptions. It may be interesting to draw out some conversation about everything, quote, being in consciousness versus everything is consciousness, and the similarities between their philosophies.
1: Okay, everything being in consciousness.
0: For me, I don't see those two phrases as being contradictory. Everything being in consciousness and everything is consciousness. It's just sort of a different way of looking at the, at the things. But if consciousness is really infinite, unbounded, well maybe you're not saying, maybe you didn't agree that it is, but you know, some worldviews would have it and some people are experience it such that everything is consciousness interacting within itself that the camera, the computer, everything we're seeing here is just consciousness appearing to take forms, but actually it's this whole self-interactive dynamics that takes place constantly giving rise to the appearance of, of physical creation. Go with that.
1: Yeah, I'm not quite sure what he means by that. I'd like to answer his question, but I'm not quite sure what he means. Now there is often a confusion where people uh, say that you know, the physical world is a product of consciousness. And somehow they see that this physical world is, it's made, like it's made up, you know, consciousness makes it somehow. It's a, you know, mass and matter is a a product of consciousness. But it's not that, it's that consciousness has created this virtual reality. And this virtual reality has the appearance of being physical and solid. But it's virtual.
0: But it's virtual, so it's it's, it's it's not physical and solid.
1: Yeah, it's not physical and solid, it's just virtual. But it appears to be physical and solid to us, just as the world of Warcraft map appears to be physical to the elf. I mean, yeah. He can't walk through trees. He has to swim if he's in the water or he'll drown. You know. He falls off cliffs, he gets hurt. It appears physical to him. He can't flap his arms and fly. You know, he's got this rule set he has to abide by, and so do we here. You know, it's, it's created. The data is created within a larger consciousness system. But it's not that the consciousness creates physical stuff. There is no physical stuff. Physical stuff doesn't really exist. It's just a data stream that you get that you interpret as this physical stuff, just like you do when you're playing World of Warcraft. You get a data stream and you interpret it as the physical stuff in the World of Warcraft map.
0: I I interviewed Bernardo and uh, we kind of had a debate about this point of everything is conscious. And, you know, Bernardo Uh. is fond of saying, well, there's nothing that it's like to be a rock you know, or to be a, a, yeah. a log or something like that. And I think, you know, my suggestion was that, for what it's worth, <laughs> that, um, you know, with greater complexity of form comes greater ability to kind of reflect consciousness. That, you know, consciousness permeates the rock as much as it does our nervous system. It's, and there is no rock, as you're saying, it's just a virtual yeah, reality right. within, within consciousness. But,
1: yeah, I would disagree you know where with I'm going? Yeah, I do. I know. I would disagree with with you there on that. Mm-hmm. I would say that there is no consciousness in a rock any more than there is consciousness in a in a physical body. Our physical body doesn't have consciousness in it either. You know, the idea that the soul well, lives in, in, in the body yeah, yeah. and the body, you know, it's not this. It's just a virtual body. It's just information. Consciousness is the creator. Yes, but. It's not that the things are conscious. The rocks aren't conscious. The body isn't conscious. Consciousness is conscious, but consciousness exists outside of this physical reality. So it's not like the things, the, the physical things here are conscious. They're not. Okay? They're just data. They're information. So where I draw the line, and it's it's my own definition of consciousness, is I say that. In order to be called conscious, you have to have a finite decision space. You have to have choices. In other words, you have to have at least two choices in the free will to pick A from B or B instead of A. That's kind of the minimum set of being conscious. You need a finite decision space, something the non-zero, you have decisions to make and you make choices. That's uh, what I define as conscious. And therefore a rock would not be conscious because a rock doesn't have any free will choices to make. A rock right. just does what a rock has to do. It it uh, moves to lower states of potential by eroding or rolling downhill or something else. You know, yeah. it it does that. So I make that distinction. But now that's just you know that's my definition. So I say consciousness is anything that makes choices, has free will and makes choices. Now, does that does, is a bug conscious? Well, I suspect many of them are. Yes. You know, cats and dogs and horses and pigs, surely. But, uh, you know, mosquitoes and things, probably, you know, you just have to, you have to determine the difference between what is hardwired, what's programmed and what's actually making choices. And I just saw something on the internet, just, just read the title, hadn't read the article yet about how people, uh, uh, did some research and said that fruit flies were uh, making um, conscious free will choices <laughs> and uh, I have seen bumblebee make a free will choice. I saw it stalk a person uh, one time. I uh, think it 'll probably a lot of bugs make decisions now on a very small level it 's not consciousness like you know like human consciousness, but consciousness is is on a a long continuum, and people aren 't necessarily at the top of it, but we have the the most impact on our environment of any other critter because of our consciousness and our opposable thumbs and and tool-making abilities and and other things. But in any case, I would say that rocks are not conscious. Now, can a rock be associated with information? Sure. You know, people call, what are they called, psychometry, right? Where you take an article, something maybe old or somebody owned it, and you hold that article and you kind of go into that article and find, oh, yes, it was a little old lady with long black hair, owned this Mm -hmm. uh, back in Roman times, et cetera, et cetera, psychometry. Well, it's not that that's bogus, but what they're doing is they're associating that article to the database. okay We have have databases. I, I mentioned the probable future database, but then there's the historical databases too. And you go to the database and you find an association with that article and you can get all that information. It doesn't mean that the bracelet or the rock has memory of its own or has consciousness of its own, but it can be associated with things and objects and places and times. It can. so
0: just serves as a trigger or sort of a... Yeah, it serves as a, as a trigger. Yeah. So yeah.
1: It's, it's not that the thing is conscious and these are the memories of the rock or the memories of the bricks, but there are right. connections to things and those connections do exist in the, in the database.
0: Well, what I would say is obviously a rock isn't conscious. I mean, a rock doesn't have the nervous system to be conscious. And when you start mentioning amoebas and mosquitoes and going up the evolutionary chain, Mm -hmm. you get more and more sophisticated nervous systems, which obviously are conscious to greater and greater degrees in the way we would define being conscious.
1: Right, they Um, get bigger and bigger decision spaces. It's more and more things they have the free will to decide.
0: Right. But if you look at a rock microscopically, you see tremendous intelligence in, in its structure, its orderliness on every level the atomic and molecular right. and crystal, crystalline structures right. and so on. There's just this kind of marvelous organization that, right. that permeates and, and uh, you know, makes up the rock. So, and, and you, know, you have to ask, well, where did that come from? What is orchestrating that marvelous display of, of intelligence?
1: That is a display of intelligence, but not the rock's intelligence. Right, right. That's some, part, some larger intelligence. That's part of the rule set. This virtual reality was not programmed like the World of Warcraft's re- re- virtual reality. It was just programmed. People sat down, programmers sat down and planted every tree, planted, you know, with quote marks. They put every tree, every blade of grass, every critter, everything that's on that set had to be programmed. Our reality is not programmed. Our virtual reality evolved. It started with a rule set and some initial conditions. The run button was pushed, and it started evolving the probabilities of you know, what would happen and random draws from those probability distributions. It was a probabilistic reality, and it evolved to be what it is. And it's not just our planet, but the whole universe evolved. And I call that the big digital bang because you start with the initial conditions of high temperature, high pressure, plasma and a tight little ball, and you know some rule sets like you know gravitation and other things, and you push the button and you just let happen whatever happens, and eventually you end up with a universe and suns and planets around suns and then life, and then we end up with people talking on Skype, you know. Eventually all this evolves. So it's an evolved reality and the rocks with all that intricate structure, represent the rule set. It's the way they evolved through all this evolutionary process. It's the way those minerals came together under the pressure and under the conditions that were here on this planet, say, or someplace else if they come in in a meteorite. And it's, it's, the, it's the chemistry and the physics. They all go together. Molecules just don't wad up in a ball, you know. They they form orderly structures. That's what makes the rock. If it was all random, you wouldn't have a rock. You'd just have random molecules flying around. But because they're all ordered in a certain way, they go together, you know, it's sort of like Legos. There's only certain ways you can put them together. You know, you just don't take a whole pile of Legos and put them in a pile and make something. You gotta actually make a structure out of them. Well, that's the rule set of how Things can exchange energy, and that ends up with a rock. And that rock, with its with its magnificent structure, that structure is a representation of the rule set, which is a representation of the mind, if you will, that created the rule set and created the computer in which it ran and that sort of stuff because the rule set makes creates the structure that way Yeah. because that's how rocks hold together. Some other structure, they would fall apart into dust. They wouldn't make it. That's a low... That's a low entropy structure. When it finally erodes and goes to dust particles, it's a high entropy structure. That's a ran- now, all the rock particles are just randomly around uh, in the environment, and that's a very high entropy version of that rock, where the low entropy version is the pretty rock with all the crystal in it. So, it does talk about intelligence, it does talk about meaning and process and lowering entropy, but it's not the rocks, it's not that the rock's conscious. But the rock is an artifact of consciousness that created the virtual reality that then evolved the rock. Yeah. So in that sense, you're right. There is obviously something intelligent going on there, some process, but it's just the rule set.
0: What fascinates me is, as to use your phrase, the mind that created the rule set. I saw a bumper sticker which said, if you're not in awe, you're not paying attention. <laughs> There's, yeah. you know, when you consider what an unbelievably miraculous thing the, the formation of the universe was and continues to be. I mean, just if the Big Bang Theory is a viable theory, I mean, or whether or not it is, I mean, just the way stars have formed and, you know, heavier elements have formed within stars and eventually this has given rise to biological life mm-hmm. and just the whole evolutionary process. It's obviously not little billiard balls banging into each other randomly. There's, there's some kind of guidance or some kind of orchestration that's taking place that that is indicative of unfathomably great intelligence as I as I see it.
1: Well, that's the rule set. You know, if you let this thing go under that rule set, then this is what you get. What you see here in this universe is the logical result of the rule set working on the initial conditions.
0: And who set up the rule set and the initial right. conditions? Well, the
1: rules, yeah, the rule set, of course, was created by the larger consciousness system because it needed a good virtual reality as a schoolhouse for yeah. individuated units of itself to go experience in so that they could lower their entropy and evolve because that's what the system needs to do is lower its entropy and evolve. So yeah. that's the, the thing.
0: And maybe also because we've just actually come full circle, because we were talking about that point in the beginning, but maybe also not only to lower their entropy and evolve, but also because in evolving and in in arriving at the state of enlightenment, which we've been alluding to, in which you're actually living the larger consciousness system, as you put it, in the midst of a human life, there's something greater to that. Than there is in just abstract, un, you know, unbounded, unmanifest, without having gone through this whole process to create such a life form who could who could sort of be a living embodiment of that divine intelligence.
1: I've had any number of people, people who uh, describe themselves as very religious, mm-hmm. their own description, tell me that they really like my big toe, and they really like this philosophy. And at first, I was really surprised. I thought, well, I thought the religious people weren't going to like me because I didn't support their dogmas. And it's not the case. There are many people who consider themselves to be very religious, or very spiritual, and they're not really hung up on dogma at all. They have a bigger picture. And in their mind, the larger consciousness system is God. Mm-hmm. They make that connection. Okay. And they see it. And the fact that I say imperfect, finite, just trying to survive, you know, lowering its entropy, that doesn't bother them. They're not, they're not hung up on those kinds of details and they see that, uh, that's a theory to be investigated. Yeah. That's their concept of God is the source. Yeah. You know, and the larger conscious system is the source, the source of everything that we can know. It's the source and the things that are outside of itself that we can't know because we're part of its insides, um, all you can say is don't know. You know, mm-hmm. conjecture again. You can't. Uh, you can't really go there.
0: Well, you know, I think that what you're doing and what you said about those religious people is, it's really significant because what's happening is that there's a kind of a coming together of the ancient traditional mystical worldviews, not the dogmatic authoritarian religious mindset. That's not going to be coming along very soon, but just the the sort of the deeper religious perspectives and the the cutting edge of of science, especially physics, and uh, and that's the kind of thing you see at that conference I mentioned, the Science and Non-Duality Conference, where you have all these quote-unquote spiritual people and all these scientific people, and there's a tremendous amount of common ground and exciting collaboration, and just they're realizing that they're both just talking about the same thing in different languages.
1: Yeah, well, I like the idea that you can start with consciousness and derive all the rest. Yeah, you know, it's all one big understanding. It's not like well, we got all these piece parts. You know, we got this piece, and we got the science piece, and we got the metaphysical piece, and you know, we got the paranormal stuff going on that nobody understands. And we got all these piece parts, but the thing that's neat is if you can if you can pull those all together under one model. You know, and I say one understanding, but I I don't want to leave the impression that that's the understanding this is a model and Mm -hmm. unlike many scientists I do not confuse the model of reality with reality you know it is just a model and it's a model that helps make sense of things but it isn't a model to to take in intellectually and understand intellectually it's a model about being it's a model about who you are Mm -hmm. and uh, not a model about uh, what you can talk about
0: yeah very good well, that might be a good point to wrap it up. I haven't asked all the questions from this guy in the UK, and I'm sure that you and I could go on for another two hours. <laughs> There's, at least, yeah, because we both love to do this stuff. But at least this gives people a taste of what you're doing. And I'm sure people, you know, want to get the book and don't look, look at some of your YouTube videos. There's, a, you mentioned to me that the Calgary talks were a good one if you're just to yeah. start with, if you want to listen to the. So I, 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 listened to those, and those were interesting, and. There's tons of stuff on YouTube. Is there anything you want to say in conclusion to people who may be new to you, know, new to well, you hadn't known of you, which, which you'd like them to know or follow up on or something?
1: Well, i just give them, if they've, if they've heard something here that piques their interest, I would encourage them to go find out whether this guy knows what he's talking about or not, or whether or not it makes any sense. It's not about belief. I do not want you to believe what I say. I want you to take what I say with, uh, with skepticism but with open-minded skepticism that's an important thing if you yeah. if you have open-minded skepticism which means believe nothing be skeptical of everything but be open-minded of all those possibilities you know that might make sense and then investigate them for yourself so that's really where it's coming from this is not a theory for you to believe or not to believe you know i don't i didn't put this out there for people to believe it i put it out there as a model because this will give you a model of the nature of reality, of your place in it, where you belong, what you should be doing about it, you know, this kind of thing. And you'll find your place in this, larger, in this larger picture. And if that's interesting to you, then I'd like to add that it's not about selling books either. If you want to read the books for free, they're on Google Books. Right after I published them, I put them all, three books, on Google Books. And uh, you're going to read them there for free. And I didn't hold any of it back. You know, Google gives you a, a, an ability to give them, you know, like 50% or 75% or mm-hmm. so many percentage of blank pages and that stuff. But it's 100%. So you get all the books there. Or you can buy them any place you normally buy books. You can buy them on Amazon or, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, you know, I've got an international uh, distributor that will ship them to any library or, or a bookstore. that mm-hmm. If they don't have them, you can mm-hmm. always order them. The videos are on youtube uh you can find them uh i guess just well i'll link to your video channel yeah okay i'll I'll link
0: to your youtube channel i'll link to your amazon books and i'll I'll link to the google books thing and all that from your page on badgap.com
1: Good. You'll have the yeah. links. And you'll find a lot of things there. Some of them, believe it or not, are short, but not many of them. Some of them are like 10 and 15 minute little segments, mm-hmm. but many of them are long. All the workshops I do, every time I do an event someplace, if I can capture it, which means the cameras all work and the mics all work and nothing runs out of batteries, if I can capture it, I put it up on YouTube mm-hmm. for everybody who couldn't make it to get it for free. So they're all there, and that means when I do a three-day workshop, you get a three-day workshop on, on video, which is like 17, 18 hours worth of video, and don't let that put you off. If you want to do it 10 minutes at a time, that's probably a good way to do it. Mostly, listening to my videos is like drinking from a fire hose. You get more information than you can digest you know, very quickly, and 15, 20 minutes at a time is probably a smart way you know, to do it. But one of the better overall kind of general ones are the ones I did at Calgary. At Calgary uh, there's a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. And Friday is just an overview. Mm -hmm. It's like two and a half hours and it just skirts over the top to tell everybody what I'm going to talk about the next two days. Then on Saturday it's the theory. How does it work? You know, how do you fit into it? Why does it work that way? Uh, What are all the the mechanics and uh, science involved in uh, My Big Toe? And then on Sunday we do experiential stuff i talk about how to get into the larger consciousness system and what you'll experience there and uh, what to do what not to do you know we talk about meditation and then we do some remote viewing and, and healing i explain how do you heal people with your mind and how do you remote view and then i actually have some remote viewing targets for people to practice on and hmm. so on so that's the experiential part of it where i make the Melvin,
0: point right <laughs> <laughs>
1: right where i make the where i make the point that it can't be your truth unless it's your experience. That's why I give you some ways that you can go have experience. Using your mind to heal, to affect health, and remote viewing are two of the easiest things to learn to do. And anybody with a a little stick-to-itiveness can learn to do these things reasonably well. That's where you begin to make it your own truth. Not that you hear me talk about it and say, oh, this guy says it can work like that you get to go do it and find out if it works like that for yourself. That's why I offer that Sunday. It's kind of the on-ramp to experiencing this reality yourself from the inside rather than reading what somebody else, how somebody else experienced it. So anyway, that's it. But it's three days and probably 17 or 18 hours worth of video. Hopefully you can go back and wind up to the time where you where you quit last or maybe your your browser will hold it so you don't have to keep doing that. But in any case, take it in small chunks, and if you like that one, there's another, yeah, another 220 more for you to go, and I pick all different kinds of subjects. They're not all about the same thing, but that would keep you busy for a very long time. I think you will find it uh, at least interesting, probably challenging, probably most people find it difficult to get their, their mind wrapped around it because the concepts are very unusual. And it's completely different than anything else you'll read anywhere else by anyone else. Uh, It's kind of unique, but that uniqueness is in how it's presented. It's in the metaphors that I use, not necessarily in the results that I come to. A lot of the results I come to most, well, I should say all the results that I come to are very much in line with results that have been dug out of the larger consciousness system for thousands and thousands of years. But it also comes up with some new things that have never been done before. You know, a few uh, experiments and things that uh, haven't yet been done, and maybe someday they will for, for verification. So it's got some new and some old and just another way of looking at the world. It's a model, and I urge you, don't confuse the model of reality, which is what MBT is, with reality. It's just a model of reality. It's a way of looking at it that will make sense to you. Hopefully. If it doesn't make sense to you, well then it's probably not a good model for you. You <laughs> ought to go find another model that does make sense to you and realize that these models in time will change. What makes sense to you will change as you uh, grow and, and learn. So that's uh, you know so just go find out. That's my hope that people that hear this that they will be interested enough to go find out and make it theirs rather than just finding out about mine.
0: That's great. And uh, I think that a lot of people who listen to this show have that attitude, that they, they want to know this for themselves, you know, as an experience. They're not, they're not just shopping around for a new belief or something. Right. And, yeah, uh, that,
1: that's useless. Yeah, a, yeah. a new belief won't get you anywhere.
0: Right. So I, I really appreciate your angle on it all. And uh, so it's been great talking to you, Tom. I've, I've really enjoyed this. and. Um, We'll be in touch. As, you know, I would like to see you speak at that conference, and I'll, I'll let you know how to do that Good. if you want.
1: And, uh, I'd be delighted to speak at that conference. I'm looking to do those kinds of things. I don't purposely keep a low profile, but I'm—you know—I need to wait for invitations. You can't just barge into a conference and say, "Hey, everybody, listen to me." You know? Yeah, that doesn't work. You need to be invited, and eventually, I think I'll get there to where, you know, um, those invitations will start coming. But yeah. uh, for now, I'm just. Uh, trying to help people see a bigger picture, and spreading that, spreading that word around, and mm-hmm. eventually it'll all come together.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, the organizers of it are friends of mine, so I'll, I'll get in touch with them and suggest they invite you. All right, so let me make some just general wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Tom Campbell, as you know. This is an ongoing series, this Buddha at the Gas Pump show. So there are about 260 other, one, other interviews at this point that you could watch. They're all archived at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Each interview has its own page, and there are several different ways in which all those pages are categorized. If you look under the past interviews menu, you'll see them alphabetical, categorical, chronological, and so on. Uh, There are a number of other things to check out. With each interview, there's a separate section in the forum, a discussion group, Um, so there'll be a (coughs) section for, for Tom and um, you can get in there and discuss what we've been talking about. There is a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, so do that if you like. There is a Donate button, which I rely upon people clicking if they feel motivated to do so. There is an audio podcast of this whole thing, so you don't have to sit in front of your computer. You can listen to it as an audio podcast, and you'll see a link to that with every interview. So those are some of the main points. So so go to batgap.com, and as I mentioned, I'll have links there to Tom's website, YouTube page, books, and so on. So check it all out. Thanks again, Tom.
1: And Thank you, Rick. It's been uh, my pleasure. It's always fun talking with you.
0: And uh, I'll see everybody next week.
1: Okay. okay. Bye.
0: Bye.